When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And what a pleasure it is to have your company on another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of a man whose voice and face is synonymous with Australian sport, and he has been for a number of decades now. And I'm delighted to say he's one of my very good mates over a long time. Sandy Roberts, welcome. Pete, great to be with you. It's lovely to be with you. We're talking to you at your property. You've got the best of both worlds. You're not that far out of the city, but you've got the rural environment. And that's something that's been important to you over your life. It has for a long time, Pete. Uh, I came originally from a farming background with my parents, but I didn't really get the itch to go back to farming life uh, until later in my career or perhaps when I was 30 and since then yes I've, I've just had a love for it I had a large property in the Western District for over 20 years the commuting beat me in the end and uh, I've slowly but surely come closer to town but I don't want to come any closer than where I am now because I don't want to hear the neighbours arguing or anything like that and where I am I can't Yes, and I can understand why, having a look at this beautiful place. And, and wine is something that um, has attracted your attention. Well, I'm not talking about drinking it. I'm talking more about making it. Well, it did. It was an attempt, Pete. And uh, I think you've always got to put your hand up when you have failures. And after six years of trying, uh, my failure was complete. So <laughs> I thought I put my hands up, raised the white flag and said, no, I think it's probably cheaper to go down to Dan's and <laughs> buy a bottle and sit out in the paddock trying to make it. What made you do that? Was that something that you'd always um, been interested in? I'd always had a um, uh, an interest, yes. And I thought, I just had this thought that if I could, my aim was to produce, try and produce a wine that was drinkable. And uh, I had friends up on for my, my first year at the attempt. And one of those friends tasted it, the first batch. And he said, um, this is like Penfolds 389. I thought, well, now, if it's as good as 389, we are going places here. Uh, but sadly, he was way off the beam. And uh, it wasn't like 389 at all. And it was just, I had problems, Pete, with uh, disease, um, a thing called powdery mildew, which really does hamper a crop severely and it's it's it was i found for some reason very difficult to get on top of so after six years as i say that was it 
Did that disappoint you? Because I know what you like. You're a perfectionist in everything that you do. It frustrated me. Yeah. Yes, it did. And uh, and oh, as you, I hate admitting defeat. And it was. I still to this day don't know exactly what it was if indeed it wasn't powdery mildew all right well that was disappointing but you look around this beautiful place and uh, here we are in the middle of november uh you've had another busy football season we'll talk about that in a moment but what do you do over the summer do you do you have a lot of work over the summer or do you consider yourself almost semi-retired now uh does the phrase right on lawnmower mean anything it, Pete? D- it does to me <laughs> yes <laughs> i know it does <laughs> i spend uh, i i um I, in years gone by, I did have a very busy summer with golf and tennis, um, then going into pre-season footy and then into the season proper. Uh, and I made a decision four years ago to take a different direction and just work pretty much 100% football. And that is what I've done and I've relished it. Um, footy seasons, as you know, uh hectic and as you get older you probably need a bit of a spell at the end of a long season and I get a decent spell so it was by design and uh, my family has enjoyed it and I've enjoyed it as well. One of the sports that you do love is golf and you had a long association with golf. Just to clarify that love broadcasting it. Not so good at playing Hellishly it. frustrating playing it. Yes well I think we're <laughs> all in the same category but we can go back to the days of uh, when Greg Norman was at the peak of his powers at the Masters at Huntingdale and there was nothing bigger in Australian golf. In fact, it was one of the biggest events in Australian sport. It must have been a privilege for you to be involved in. I remember, Pete, the day two of the players that were playing on the final two days were Greg Norman and Nick Faldo. Mm. They shut the gates at Huntingdale. They physically shut the gates. They would not let anyone else in. It was just chock-a-block. And, I mean, they were heady days. Um, yeah. It's when golf, due to Greg, Largely, uh, golf was absolutely flying on television. We, we we covered golf tournaments like the New South Wales Open, the Victorian Open, uh, and now, uh, sadly for the game, it has all but disappeared. I remember that year you were talking about with Faldo and Norman. Remember the 14th hole, the par five, five it's five. about 550 yep. metres, yep. and it was basically lined that year when Norman and Faldo yeah. were playing together. Yeah, it was, it was, it was head-to-head yeah. with those two. And, yeah, it was just... It was extraordinary times. I mean, but again, that was the Norman era. This chat's going to go all over the place. We're not going to follow any set routine. I've gathered that, actually. Yeah, well, get used to it, because that's what <laughs> it's going to be for the next part of the hour. What was your favourite Olympics? How many, how many have you done? I think I've done 10. That's summer and winter, so I'm yeah. not that old. Um, I think... Pete, you tend to always remember something that you do the first time. First time, mm-hmm. um, like I, I remember um, my first grand final that I called. I remember my first Olympic games, uh, and that was in Moscow in 1980. And they were very dramatic times in those days. The government uh, was under real pressure. That Malcolm Fraser, I think, was the prime minister at that time. The government was under real pressure uh, to not send a team of not only athletes, but also broadcasters. Ron Casey, who was our then general manager, um, after discussions with Canberra, etc., decided that we would send a team uh, and there would be an Australian team of athletes that went, albeit 
a slightly smaller one than we would have sent otherwise to Moscow. Um, you look now at Olympic Games and they will send a team of perhaps 300, 350 in the broadcast team. We sent 49. Mm-hmm. And um, it was quite extraordinary. Things are so different in those days. You know, you couldn't... It was difficult to prep for anything because I know that you know Ron Casey, knew Ron Casey, yeah. uh, a great man, a dear man, um, who was our boss over there. And I'll give you an idea of how things were different. Uh, we would have breakfast. be all called down for breakfast, 7 o'clock every morning. Ron would then stand up and he would say, um, boys and girls, welcome. Good morning, everyone. Uh, today we're looking at these sports, and he'd rattle them off. Uh, Bill Collins, I'd like you to cover Taekwondo. <laughs> Sandy Roberts, I'd like you to do archery. Well, the only thing then at that moment that I knew about archery was courtesy of Robin Hood. Yes. So, I mean, a dear old Bill uh, who called the athletics, some did say a bit like a race call, but it was, he was still fantastic. And to get him to go and do Taekwondo, yeah. I remember... They were, that and the archery were uh, in a similar field. And Bill and I went there together, and we were both just sort of shaking our heads, saying, what on earth are we going to do here? But we got through, and that's, that's just the way it was done. And then Ron, who worked so hard over there, became ill. He, he, he fronted the coverage. And uh, he came, whether I think it was through stress, had this terrible rash that came over his face and Gary Fenton who was uh, the executive producer uh, had a meeting with him and said look uh, you, you can't go on Ron. You, you know that's just, just unfortunately uh, you're under so much stress that this has occurred and uh, I think it'd be better if we took you away from hosting and let you concentrate on just doing the PR stuff for the network and so that was when Gary gave me the opportunity to host and that was probably the start they then asked me at the end the last week over there would I like to come across to Victoria and it took me about three seconds to say yes and um, so that was largely due to my coming over here and uh, it was just it was a great game so I mean you're, you know in Olympic games it's full on every day and we finished Moscow and uh, I got to know well Ray Weinberg, who did the field events, and Ron Clark, who did the track events. And we were all exhausted at the end. And uh, Ron, I think, Ron uh, Casey gave us a couple of days. We didn't have to come back immediately. So the three of us, Weinberg, Clark and Roberts, um, got a vessel on the Rhine River in Germany and spent a couple of days just going down the Rhine, relaxing, and it was unbelievable. It was fantastic. It sounds unbelievable. It's probably a good thing you didn't go with Peter Landy after the Moscow Olympics because wasn't there oh, that story that he yes. got himself into a little bit of trouble? Yes, and uh, Pete, if you're listening, welcome. Hello, Hooks. Yes. <laughs> I think he was we being, won't go there. I think he was being chased by police at one stage. <laughs> the, uh, Something KGB. down by the river, wasn't it? <laughs> Something like that. Yes. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> uh, just before we take our first break, you talked yep. about your, your favourite Olympics being your first one. You said your favourite grand final or your memorable grand final was the first one you called. Which one was that? Uh, the first one I called was 1990 when Essendon went in as favourites against Collingwood and had absolute 
enormous trouble even scoring. And the Pies broke well, for 1958, what was that, 32-year drought, yeah. uh, as you being a black-and-white man would understand. Really? Have you yeah. picked that up over yeah, the years? Yes, I just managed to pick it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that, but it was, and I mean, it was a memorable grand final. It wasn't a, wasn't a classic grand final, but it had the big punch-up uh, with Terry Danner and uh, Rowdy Brown, um, and it was just memorable for, for Collingwood, you know. And the other thing I remember... Uh, distinctly, and it, the only other time I've, it felt like this was with the St Kilda Collingwood draw, and that when the siren sounded in 1990, because Collingwood hadn't won a flag for so long, the supporters didn't really know what to do, mm. and the, it was the same with that draw in what 2010 uh, with St Kilda and Collingwood. You, you walked out of the stadium, <laughs> and it was quiet. Because no one won. Well, of course, in 1990, Collingwood won, but they were so used to not winning, it was strange for them. And Darren Mullane was the man who yeah. had the ball when the siren sounded, and he played that final series with he a broken thumb. thumb. He did, and he held the ball aloft, I yeah. remember. And uh, sadly, uh, not long after that, uh, tragically, we lost him. We did. Time to take a break. And then when we come back on the other side of the break, I want to turn the clock back even further and find out where Gee. you got your start in this wonderful business. Sometimes, we love so much. Sometimes wonderful, sometimes <laughs> not so wonderful. Nah, it's all good, Pete. Sandy Roberts is my special guest on this edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives every day of the year. More with Sandy after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Great to have your company for a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Sandy Roberts is my special guest. Let's go back to the start. How did you get into this business, Sandy? Pete, uh, I started, I wanted to do, I thought I wanted to do journalism um, very early on. And so I managed, after I left school, to get a job as a copy boy at News Limited in South Australia. Uh, sadly, the Murdoch family, after 12 months, decided they probably didn't need copy boys. <laughs> so that was the end of that. How old were you then? Uh, well, I was just left school, what, 18? Yeah. So I decided that um, I'll try something different. So I hopped on the train, and the train took me across the Nullarbor to Perth, and I was walking down St George's Terrace after jumping off the train. And I saw a radio station sign, 6pm. And I thought, I'll go in there and see what they're doing. And so I went in and I said, I'd like to, you know, like to apply for a job. And uh, so I chatted to the news editor and uh, he said, would you just go into that booth and take these scripts, read them? Yep, no problems. So I did that and um, he came out and he said, when would you like to start? So I said, I'll be in in the morning. So that was the start of that. And then I uh, did that for uh, 18 months and really enjoyed it. Um, I think you may well have chatted with the host of the 4 to 7 shift on 6pm, which was in those days called the Pleasure Machine, and we played rock. Did he call a bit of footy? Well, let's just say he was centimetre perfect. <laughs> yes, he, he has did. been a guest on this uh, Yeah, he was... Uh, and so, uh, Den was there um, working as a, as a disc jockey, so I, I really enjoyed that. But then I decided I wanted to travel, so I went overseas and 
did what a lot of people do, just odd jobs, and then came back and wanted to get back into um, radio because I really enjoyed radio. What was the weirdest job you had when you were overseas? Um, well, uh, you, you had to sort of stretch the truth a bit if you wanted a job. So uh, I had three, I think. One, I officiated in the construction of office furniture. And I always remember we, we had to take a desk and assemble it in the Stock Exchange Manning, Managing Director's office. Well, I have never put together a desk. I mean, imagine me working for IKEA. I wouldn't get past first base. So there we are, sitting up there on the top floor of the London Stock Exchange, me with the directions with this other little pom, trying to work out point, point, add A to A, join B to B. I don't know how long we were there putting it together, but that, that didn't last all that long. Then I um, cut curtains. And the last job I got, which I enjoyed parts of it, as I managed, I was with another friend and we each got a job on a very large farm in the Midlands in a place called Worksop. And uh, historians will tell you that uh, the people in the Midlands uh, and particularly around Worksop loved Australians because they had an air base there during the war. And the Australians, this is the Second World War, the Australians um, spent a lot of time there and they really, the local people really got to know them and loved them. So we were given, each got a job on this big farm. Now, when I say it's a big farm, Pete, it had uh, its own oval. It had uh, probably 12 houses. When we got our job, we were each given a tractor and a house. And then we were told what our duties were. One of them was the worst job, and this is what I'm getting to. It's called brashing. Now, they had a, a number of pine forests, pine trees, and you know what pine needles are like. They're very thin. Mm. Brashing, you're each given a handsaw, and you've got to cut off the bottom six feet of branches. And you were paid by the acre. And unfortunately, in... England in the winter every time the saw went like that you had a cold shower because all the rain sticks on the pine needles <laughs> so we didn't last long with that one I think that was about three or four days we said no no that's not for us well yes well we can understand why you've come back and then wanted to pursue your dream so when you come back from this stint overseas where did you land was it uh, Adelaide I can, no no to Melbourne and Went to 3CS. Of course, yes. yeah. Um, and I had a really enjoyable 12 months there. I went on uh, holidays uh, after 12 months and went to Adelaide, and I went into Channel 7 in Adelaide. And I applied for a job, and uh, I didn't get past the front door hardly. Uh, the manager said, look, I'm sorry, um, you, you've just got no experience. You've, you've got to get some experience if you want to work in the city. So... Um, I immediately thought, all right, I'll find a job in television. And I applied for a position at, at um, BCV8 Bendigo. And fortunately, I got the job. And so the next year, I went back to Adelaide to the managing director and knocked on his door again. And I said, oh, I think I've got some experience. I'm back. And went into the studio and I had to do these... Uh, I always remember I had to do uh, some news reads 
then I had to do a couple of commercials, and one was for vegetables, and I really stuffed it up, and I thought, oh, I've buggered this up, you know, I'm gone. Anyway, I got the job. So that was, and that's how it started. And I was doing, you know, when you're the station announcer at uh, at these at these stations like Bendigo and also Adelaide, because it was it wasn't like uh, HSV or GTV in, in those days. Um, you did everything, and I always remember once in Bendigo, I had to do a Bendigo Motor Company, which was Holden commercial, and not only did I go out and um, record it, the vision. I had to write it. So I came back. I then had to put it together. So what I did, first I wrote the script. I went into videotape, put a videotape on the machine, pressed record, sprinted into the voice booth, shut the door, read the script, turned off the mic, went out, turned off the videotape. That's what you had to do. But that's how you learn. And it was a great grounding because oh, you fantastic. understood so many different areas of the business. It was fantastic. I mean, in, and in Adelaide, I did everything. I hosted the midday movie, you know, the, talking to women about film stars and things like that. And then somehow, I don't even remember how it happened, but I was asked to call some reserves footy. And uh, I did. And, uh, you know, it was bloody hard and um, anyway I I kept doing it and, and and gradually eased or gave up the midday movie for starters but um, eased into presenting sport on the news and doing footy on weekends and you talked about how the transition partially came about from Adelaide to Melbourne because of the Moscow yeah. Olympics and you moved to Melbourne yeah even apart from football, tennis, all of the things that you've done, one thing that people who know you, identify with you, is World of Sport. Yeah. That great show, that yeah. institution. It must have been such a thrill for you to go into the chair after Case and try and control all that rabble <laughs> in that studio on a Sunday. Well, for people that uh, aren't aware of it, I mean, really, it was it was the, the forerunner. It was the program that basically has sparked shows like the footy show. I mean, World of Sport was uh, a tonight show during the day. It was an, it was pure entertainment. It was all ad lib. I mean, you and I were both very lucky to work with vaudevillians like uh, Uncle Doug Elliott, yeah. Bill Collins, hugely talented Bill Collins, Ron Casey, uh, Lou Richards, Jack Dyer. I mean, the list goes on and on. And then these... I remember these young kids coming in, uh, youngsters, Kevin Bartlett mm. uh, doing the Junior Supporters Club. Uh, Sam Newman was Sam a young Newman, man. Sam uh, Newman was a young man and and very straight in those days. Mm. Um, so, But they were, they were fantastic days. And I always remember when I did take over and I got in and uh, Case was there and um, uh, I was on the floor and he was up on the seventh floor. That, that was the difference between us two. He was, he was up the top. <laughs> anyway, he rang and said, could I go up to the seventh floor? I said, yep, I'll, I'll come up. And um, Bill was in there and Uncle Doug was in there. And um, Ron, this was this was uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. And Ron said, uh, what would you like to drink? I said, no, I'm fine, thanks, Ron. Have a drink. So I did. And... Um, 
that 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 in many ways epitomised world of sport. Mm. You know, him his way of saying good luck and all that sort of thing. It was just they were great days, and I, I vividly remember our last day because we were both there, and uh, it was an emotion charged day because world of sport touched so many people right around the country. I mean, it was just amazing. Oh, Louis always used to tell the story of how. Um, the local priest uh, was complaining because uh, all his uh, flock uh, disappeared on Sundays at 11 o'clock and he was wondering what was going on and someone informed him, don't be silly, World of Sports on. So that was, it was just a a really good, fun, family three hours and everything from woodchop to rollerblading to coach's corner uh what's your decision there was a little something the old fred villiers with the soccer um, john dobby with the john Do- i can hear that lilting music <laughs> even today <laughs> oh golly yeah. um there was something for everyone yeah um so yeah it was a it was an honor to do it and a, well, and a privilege and um as i say if it wasn't for world of sport There'd be a lot of shows that wouldn't be on our screens today. I often remember our Sundays together because basically we took the station between us, and it was mostly you, but I had a little bit of input there. We took the station from, I think, about 9.30 in the morning through until 6.30 at night because you would do Junior Supporters Club. Correct. On a Sunday. Correct. Mr Bartlett. Yes. And for those that really don't know, I can confirm, basically, he is an insane little man. He is. Yes, there's no question about that. <laughs> but a great one. And then I would do World of Sport replay with yeah, the, the racing, and racing replays, yep. which would go through until 11 o'clock. And then you'd hand over, or it would be over to you for hosting World of Sport. Quite often, it would be about quarter to two, you would have to leave the studio to go to the Lake Oval to do the Army Reserve Cup. And so I'd do the last half hour of World of Sport. Then I'd come down to the Lake Oval and do the Army Reserve Cup with you, and then you would go back and do the news. Correct. That night. Yeah. Yeah. It was... uh and, and people wonder today about overexposure. Yes. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Um, and can I just say, Pete, I don't think we should dwell too much on the Army Reserve Cup, otherwise we'll need a three-hour program. Well, one thing I did want to ask you about the Army Reserve Cup on a serious note, and that is a lady called Thelma. Yep. She used to ring you all the time, and she used to come down to the Army Reserve Cup. Tell us about Thelma, because not many people know about this story. Mate, it wasn't just the Army Reserve. When I used to do the um, the parade, the what's the parade? Uh, not Moomba, but uh, the Easter parade or whatever it was that we used to do and televise. And Thelma would be, and we'd just be doing it off a, a you know, a, a, what do you call it? Uh, like we'd broadcast from at the Lake Oval, an open air virtual yeah, thing. Just a, a riser. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, and like the situation at uh, the Lake Oval, uh, Thelma would stand down right in front, mm-hmm. and suddenly uh, a jaffa or a fantail had hit me in the head, <laughs> and she's throwing sweets at me. Now, you've got to remember uh, that Thelma was probably, uh, when we first came across her, would have been 75 to 80 years of age. Uh, she didn't have two pennies to rub together and uh, was very lonely and um, we we sort of became her family Don mm. Scott uh, to a lesser well Peter McKenna as well than the three of us and um, 
she she just came every week. She'd go to church in the morning, and she would then come to the footy and continue to. And some of the sweets would have been months old. But <laughs> is that my little boy Sandy? <laughs> She'd be yelling out, <laughs> and we're trying to call the footy. And um, she stayed with us. And then, of course, the battle at the end. And this is where Peter McCare and I learnt very quickly that I had to get back to the studio and Pete had to get home. So. Mm-hmm. Who was going to take Thelma home? Don, over to you. (laughs) And sometimes we would find her having a rest in the back of the OB truck. You know, there was nothing for her to go and have a little doze there for a while. She was a lovely... Well, she was a a different person. She was a lonely person, so it was really nice that we could look after her. She passed away. Yeah. And the um, executor... Uh, of her what is executive trustee rang us rang me and um, asked uh, if we would be the pallbearers at yes. her funeral and uh, we so did that and she didn't she, she did not have a bean to her name yeah it was you Scotty Peter McKenna uh, and myself, myself. Yeah. yeah yeah that was extraordinary wasn't it yeah it was I mean you would you, because you were ground level at the like oh, so with the you toaster cop, you copped a first hand yes I did Several times. <laughs> but, uh, yes, it was a, a lovely end to that story. Yeah, um, yeah. That we were able to yeah. take her to her final resting place. Yep, it was. Yeah. It was. As usual, I'm running over time. But we're going to take a break, and we have plenty more to talk about with Sandy Roberts when we come back on the other side of the break. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, serving families across Victoria for more than 80 years. More with Sandy after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Sandy Roberts is my very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Sandy, what's your relationship like with Channel 7 now? Because you spent so much time at Channel 7 and now you're calling uh, the footy for Fox and we'll talk about that more. But when you left 7, you were doing news at the time. I want to ask you another question about news because you always told me you hated news so much, but you finished up back at the news desk. Um, are you okay with Channel Seven? Was there yeah. any angst or acrimony at the time? No, no. It was. It was. Well, whenever you leave a place after having been there for probably thirty-five years and head towards what is ostensibly the opposition, mm. there's going to be a bit of angst. But no, virtually once I was out the door. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I'm fine. Good luck to them. I've got good friends uh, that are still working there, good friends with guys like Peter Mitchell, who I've known for a long, long time, and no, no problems at all. So why did you finish up back on the news desk? Because you did used to tell me that news was not your favourite thing in the world. In fact, uh, the one thing that I always knew about you is, after you'd done sport on the news, <laughs> you were well and truly out the door by the time the weather had actually... The tail lights in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you were gone by the time the bulletin had finished. So what prompted you to go back into the news area? Uh, that was because uh, Ian Johnson, who was uh, general manager at the time, uh, felt that there was a problem in the sport area on air reading and it needed to be addressed. And he wanted me back to do it. Um, and I always remember John Owen, he called me and he said, oh, can you do us a really big favour? What's going on here? Back in the news. Okay, Jono. So, yeah, and um, look, it didn't detract uh, in any way from uh, me still covering 
sport. It detracted from me covering football for seven, but I was able to work then with Croc uh, Hutchie, uh, gave us the opportunity, which was fantastic. And um, I was able to combine the two. A lot of people were uh, surprised when the football went back to seven that you weren't involved calling because you'd been synonymous with calling footy. Was that your decision or was it something that they decided? Was it just your decision that you didn't want to do it because you had enough on your plate? That wasn't my decision. Okay. No. Did that surprise you that you weren't uh, involved or considered to be involved? Yes, it did uh, in many ways, but uh, I suppose in another it didn't because I because I was doing news, I was working Monday to Friday. So uh, I didn't really mind that uh, I wasn't going to be working six or seven days a week. So it, it wasn't a problem. And what I did with Croc was still only on a Friday night. So, And in those days, we always did a news cross for seven um, and at the ground. So it, it's, that suited me perfectly, doing those two things. But as far as calling footy for seven, yeah, I was a little surprised. Mm. Just the way it was done, or if you like, not done. Yeah, sometimes these things happen in this business, as Roy we all know. Or- Roy Orbison had a very big hit, Pete. It was called Communication Breakdown. Yes. And I think we should play it at some time to management around the world. Yes, it's amazing that we work in the communications industry and sometimes there's bugger all of it going on. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. But you're still calling footy, as yeah, we said, yeah. these days with uh, with Croc and AFL Nation yep. uh, and also with Fox yep. back on with the likes of Eddie and Anthony Hudson. And you still enjoy it, I can tell, I just by it. listening to you. Yeah, no, I love it. I think, um, as I said to you before, and I've probably said it to you a number of times, that if because we're doing the sports that we love, um, you enjoy it. It's not really like a job. I mean, we are privileged to be able to go to the MCG absolutely privileged uh, and sit there with 80,000 and call a game. I mean a handful of people in the world get to do that. So bring it on. How long do you want to keep doing it for? Have you got an end date in mind or is it just I'll see how you go along the way? No, I'm acutely aware of uh, getting out at the right time. Um, Bill Collins always said that, didn't he? Yep. Get out while you're on top. Yep. And I think my eyesight will probably you know your eyesight and your brain for alertness and quickness uh you know if you can retain those then there's no reason why you couldn't keep calling for you know another five years things can change very quickly hence you make the most of every game that you do and every week that rolls by we're just about out of time. We've got to take our final break. When we come back on the other side of the break, there's a few things that I want to talk to you about, and it won't come as any great surprise that one of them involves a little town near the border of Victoria and South Australia. And I thought you were going really well with this program. We've only got one point. segment to go, so hopefully <laughs> I might be able to get through and talk about something that happened one day at Mount Gambier. <laughs> when we come back on the other side of the break oh, with dear. Sandy Roberts <laughs> on This Is Your Sporting Life. For Tobin Brothers Funerals with 23 chapels across Victoria and online at tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll be back to wrap it up with Sandy after the break. Yeah! You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donigan. 
Our final segment with Sandy Robertson. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. Uh, Sandy, your boy Angus is uh, going to be working at the tennis uh, next year. He's doing a bit of work with Croc Media as well, so coming into the media business, you must be very proud of him. Well, he's he's only, what, he's 17 years of age, and um, it would be nice perhaps if he was to follow his... Uh, elder brother Ben uh, of course works at Fox as well so uh, there are probably some people saying well not another bloody Roberts around the place (laughs) but uh, we'll just see how he goes but it's exciting for him and uh, talking about your boys we couldn't mention your boys without asking about your late son Sam and that was a really tough time in your life it was a a tragic story it was uh, for a long time sadly Uh, Sam was a was a haemophiliac so he had to have a lot of blood transfusions and uh, unfortunately, he uh, he got a bad batch and uh, became HIV positive, and uh, took a number of years. But uh, sadly, he we lost him, mm. yeah, and it was very very sad. But we had uh, sports an amazing thing. We had uh, some great support. Um, I had the farm in the Western District at that time, and Greg Norman came flew down in a chopper played snooker with him for Sam and Sam you know he was only what 14 and he, he I'll always remember I don't know whether it was meant to be or whatever but Greg is a very good snooker player well Sam played really well you know and he potted balls and I thought this is it was absolutely fantastic and Greg was very good to him he came and saw him in hospital uh, Gary Ablett senior and Buddha Hocking were also very good uh, they came to Geelong hospital because he spent a lot of time there so um, it's one of those things, Pete, uh, you never, ever wish for. You're not meant to bury your child, and um, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. You put on a very brave face at the time, though, because I remember coming to the funeral in the Western District, and you were the one who was probably seemingly on the outside more buoyant than a lot of us because we knew how much it had hurt you, but you did put on that brave face for a while, but it, I guess it was just a facade it's it's interesting I still think of it today and um, I almost think that I was in shock Mm. I I think that's what it was and um, I mean you you don't know how you're going to react Pete when something like that happens Um, so yeah that's that's the only thing I can put it down to Um, every person is different uh, handles the passing of a loved one differently and um, when it's one of your young boys, it's it's bloody tough. Yeah. I'd imagine so. Um, let's talk about a, a brighter time that we shared together. We did a couple of Mount Gambier Cups together because you were actually very good friends with Tony Phillips, who was the station manager at Mount Gambier. So we did a couple and we had some good times. And those. Are you happy to discuss this? I mean, there's, no. a, there's a radio no, license here. No, isn't we there? don't. We don't have to go into all of these details. <laughs> but I wanted to talk to you about another moment at Mount Gambier. Now, you have often said to me, I've done Olympic Games, I've done World Championships, I've done Grand Finals, but there is one thing that I'm remembered for above all of that, and that was one year when Miss Australia was at the races. Yes, it was the delight that she was able to attend. What was her name, Sandy? Her name was Leanne Dick, okay. and uh, yes, she was there that particular year. I think, if memory serves me correctly, it was 83, and uh, I, I had to do... We were on air for two hours, 12 to 2. We covered two races, the jump, main jumps race and the cup, and I'd get there early and 
usually pre-record some interviews and stuff. And uh, I had to pre-record one with Miss Australia, Leanne Dick, which I did. Uh, all went well. It was put in the can. And the program went live at 12 o'clock. Uh, leading up towards the jumps race, uh, our, our interview with Leanne had just gone, had gone to air. Uh, we were in a commercial break. And um, I'm in the mounting yard if memory serves me correctly. Yes. And Tony Phillips, who was the manager of the station, was probably 15, 20 metres away with another microphone and cameraman in case something happened to me. You know, in this technical world, we can lose uh, lose audio or something like that. And uh, so we are uh, in a break and we are alerted that a horse has thrown a plate. So I've got this earpiece in and the producer is saying, look, you're going to have to find someone there because we're going to have to fill while they fix this horse. Just grab someone and do a live interview with them. And I, I'm in the clock's ticking away. I said, no, there's, there's no one here. The only person I can see here is that Leanne Dick. Well, uh, I've interviewed her and that's just gone to air. No, 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 just look, get her back now because we, we're coming out of the break. Just get her and talk about something else. Oh, okay, now stand by. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Welcome back to Picturesque Glen Burnie Racecourse here in Mount Gambier. Still with me is Miss Australia, Leanne Cock, uh, Dick. <laughs> and was, from then, <laughs> I realised what I'd said. Yes. And I was trying so desperately to keep a straight face, and you can hear my voice go, time now for fashions <laughs> on the field. And I, I looked across at uh, Leanne, and it was like looking at a piece of stone. <laughs> See, but I, can I just say that since that time, I've got to know her well. She's a delightful person, and we both laugh about it now. But... Yes, it'll probably be on my gravestone, Pete. Was it true that you actually tried to throw to Tony, who was about yes. 10 yards away, but he was in uncontrollable fits of He laughter. was on his knees with tears <laughs> streaming down his face. And I thought, isn't that good of management to back me the way they have? Well, it's nice to be able to finish this chat on a lighter note. As I mentioned, your boy Angus is taking some steps in the same business. Are there any pieces of advice that you've given him or would there be a piece of advice that you would give to young people listening to you now and thinking, gee, I'd love to have a career like Sandy Roberts had? My advice is if you want to go into it, go hard, but, but have a crack at everything and, and just enjoy it. Mm. You know, it's, and it's, it's a privilege to have a career that we have. We, we're just, we are the lucky few. We are. Thanks for the chicken sandwiches. It's a pleasure, and, man. And the coffee. And I spared no expense. Yes, for having us in your part of the world. And uh, I can honestly say that I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for your guidance in my early days in television. You taught me so much. Thank you. Pleasure, Pete. Thank you for having me. Sandy Roberts joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And we'll be back with another very special guest same time next week right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.